Well, good morning. You know, it's what speakers say when they greet a congregation that they're happy to be here and be a part of the time. And I can't imagine, though, anyone meaning it more than I do. Uh, I bring you greetings from Nellie and from Drew, from Landon, from Amy Beth. Uh, all four of us, five of us, talked about before I came just the, the joy of the seven years we spent here, the seven long winters that the Thomases were in Chicago. And we uh, are thrilled to be back. Mike uh, called me not um, you know, long after uh, his stroke. We were talking on the phone. We stayed very connected during uh, the early time, and I've been out to see him once uh, already. And he asked me if I would come in and, and take a Sunday, which I happily agreed to do, only to find out that as soon as he hung up with me, he made plans to be out of town, to not be here the weekend I was going to be here, with his in-laws, no less. So I'm trying not to be uh, too insulted by that. But Mike, I will talk to him at least every other day and ask him how he's doing, how his recovery's going. And one of the things that he'll track with me is his, his mile time. He's running, you know, back at running again and, and uh, was disappointed that his mile time was over 10 minutes and he's trying to bring it back down. And, and I assured him that what you all were really concerned with was not the, the length of time for his mile, but more the length of time of his sermons. And that was the thing that you wanted him to pay a little more attention to. So, so he's, uh, he's aware of that. I would like to, Amos, by the way, let me just say, I'm really excited about this possibility with Crossroads. I, one of the things I love about this church and the heart of, of Christ Church is its desire to do whatever it takes to, to expand God's kingdom and His message of love. And so at getting to know Anson and, and what a wonderful man he is and hearing about the possibilities, it, it sounds uh, pretty thrilling. And so just know I'll be praying with you and with your leadership as well. For, for the next few minutes, I, I, I want to do something that's a little different than teaching, I think, because I, I don't imagine I'm going to bring a definitive answer on what we're going to look at at all. But I do want to point you in a direction this morning. In addition to that, I'd like to, if you would tolerate this, um, some of you were here when we left about 11 years ago and wonder, what, what was that all about? What, what, what was going on there? And I, if you'll allow me, a decent preacher knows better than to make a sermon about himself. You could argue whether I fit that category. I don't really want to make this about myself. However, I'd like to share with you just a little bit because it, it relates to what we're going to, to look at this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for um, being here in our midst as we gather. We're grateful for this place, this, this church, this local expression of uh, your body. And Lord, I just thank you that your Holy Spirit is here today, that your Holy Spirit comes with a very specific agenda for each life, each heart here. Uh, I pray in Jesus' name that, that hearts would be open, and I pray, God, that you would cause my mind to fear whether my heart means what I say. And God, meet us in these uh, moments together, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I became a follower of Jesus, not just his teachings, but actually orienting my life around him when I was in my teenage years, which means that you can count in decades how many years I've, I've followed the Lord. And um, I've been in ministry over 30 years, but what I want to talk to you about for a few moments this morning is something 
I think I didn't begin to learn until about 12 to 13 years ago, which, of course, puts me kind of smack dab in my time here at Christ Church. Um, I had been afforded a sabbatical, and so we took some time off. Our kids were in uh, elementary, middle school, and high school, and they had no idea what was going on with me, but, but Nellie and I did. Um, there was an exhaustion of, of soul that was uh, part of my, the backdrop of my life. I felt like I wanted to retire in my 40s. I wanted to spend most mornings when the alarm would go off just pulling the covers back up over my head and, and shutting the day out. And it got to the point where I was going to need a breakthrough of some sort or I was going to break down. And you might think with the backdrop of that kind of circumstance, the backdrop of the life would have been every, everything bad about my life, and it just wasn't. My kids were doing fine. My, my marriage was okay. The uh, reality of, of what was going on in, in uh, the ministry here at the church was great. We just built a building, and we had added staff and added a new service, and people were growing and finding Christ. And so, it was very confusing to me and disorienting to me, and my instinct was to, to clamp down harder, to control more, to more force of the will. And during that season, God planted in me the beginnings of something that, that, that I have been in pursuit of uh, ever since. And I'd like to, to share that with you a little bit, because if you're not careful, you can begin to assume in the quiet places of your walk with God that when you're struggling, when you're feeling like uh, life isn't fitting together, that, that, that there's something aberrant about you, that you are something less than you should be, you can develop a low kind of spiritual self-image. Maybe some of you can relate. You, you come to church because you're supposed to. It's an important thing to do. You might do a few spiritual push-ups maybe uh, before you leave the house. You can look a little more jacked up than you really are, right? And you come and you smile and you maybe mouth a few of the songs and grit your teeth through the sermon. Um, but at, at some point, if you were real honest, you feel just a little bit fraudulent. I, that's how I felt. Just a little bit fraudulent. I had asked Jesus to die for me, and he had, but I had not figured out how to let him live in me. If you're in that camp, if you can relate to that at all, you are in a uh, good company. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans 7. Beginning in verse 15, I think when he says, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do what I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Gratefully, during my crisis about 12 years ago, there was no moral collapse or spiritual compromise as a backdrop of my life. But when I read, read words like Paul, and you read further in that chapter, and he talks about who's going to deliver me from this, wretched person that I am, he says, I can relate. Maybe you can too. And Paul, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, writes then chapter 8 of Romans. Chapter 8 of Romans is perhaps the most dense teaching in the New Testament on the Holy Spirit. The word spirit is mentioned 20 times in Romans chapter 8. And it's Paul breaking through into open places of understanding of what it means to live a Christian life in the spirit. 
Now, the church I grew up in, I don't fault them for this, but we didn't talk a lot about the Holy Spirit. We didn't quite know what to do with Him. He was sort of that strange Cousin Eddie relative of the Trinity that you weren't sure if he was going to show up or not to the particular family gathering. And if he did, you weren't sure how he was going to act. And when he left, you just weren't sure how to talk about what just happened. And so we kind of just leave the Holy Spirit um, out of the conversation. That was my experience. So for some moments this morning, I want to aim you in the direction of God's Spirit and to ask you to consider what place is God's Spirit playing in your life? The most direct passage on the Spirit and His place in our life, I think, is found in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. For a moment, we're going to linger around this, this one verse. Ephesians 5.18 reads this way, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. This idea of being filled is simply the idea of being permeated and influenced by. It's the idea of being overcome with something. It's a common word. You can look at those who were overcome with anger at Jesus' teaching. It says they were filled with anger. Those that were jealous of Paul and Barnabas' ministry in Acts were filled with jealousy So it's a very common word, and it means this idea of being overcome by a power that is greater than your own. It's this idea of involuntarily, perhaps, being so overcome by something that it so permeates your life and begins to affect naturally how you respond. A few months ago, or a couple uh, weeks ago, actually, I was um, out in the sun for too long of a period of time, and I got heat stroke. And my heart started to race, and I got nauseous, and I thought I was going to pass out. And even when I remember back on the day and a half, I sort of don't remember all of the day. And it was just kind of one of those times where suddenly I was overcome by pain. By, by, and I wasn't a father. I wasn't a husband anymore. I wasn't a pastor. All I was was a guy with, with, with heat stroke. Or another uh, overcome moment was the moment where I was filled with joy. I want to introduce you to Hannah Grace uh, this morning. Hannah Grace is our grandbaby. She's two months old, born to Landon and his wife, Courtney. And when I stood in the hospital room and I held Hannah for the first time, it was just like in the movies. Everything else in the room went kind of fuzzy, and it was the only thing that was crystal clear was was me and, and Hannah Grace. There are those kinds of times where we are overcome. We are so filled with whatever it is in the moment. We are invited into this kind of filling of the Holy Spirit. So let me go a little uh, language nerd on on you for a moment this morning. This idea of being filled. First of all, can I point out to you that it's as we parse the word, it's a it's an imperative. It's it's in the command mode or mood. So this is not something that's given to us as a list of options for us to consider uh, alongside everything else. This is something that we're actually commanded to do. The Bible tells us that when we give our lives to God, when God takes hold of us, that His Spirit comes and lives within us and uses words like seal, sealing us, or baptizing us, or indwelling us. 
Those are one-time things. If I understand Scripture correctly, we never get any more of the Holy Spirit in us than we receive when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. However, when we speak about the filling, it seems to be something that we have to continually choose to do. And it's not a matter then of getting the Holy, more of the Holy Spirit when we're filled by Him, but it's more a matter of the Holy Spirit getting more of us. So it's, it's an imperative move. Secondly, it's plural. That means it's for everyone. It's be filled, you all. It's for everyone to consider, not for the spiritually elite. Third, it's, it's passive. It's, it's a, something that's done to us versus something we do. It's not intended for us to add on to our to-do list. This is something for us to open ourselves up to, to receive. God's the one who acts, and we're the object acted upon. And then finally, it's in the present tense, which means it's in continual motion. You're to be continually filled with the Spirit. You're sealed at one time, but we're invited continually to be filled with God's Spirit. Now, this is one of three times in Scripture where being filled with the Spirit is compared, contrasted with drunkenness. In, in Roman day, substance abuse was, was rampant, and so they would quickly understand what Paul's talking about, because when a person is drunk, they're still that person. They're just that person without the kind of controls that they would typically have on their life. And so he is saying, let the Holy Spirit be that substitute, that substance that comes in and takes who you really are, but leads you into what he has for you. Now, the question that I want to know is, how will I know if I'm filled with God's Spirit? What will that look like? I I would like to compel you this week, alongside whatever you already do in your reading of God's Word, to read Romans chapter 8 carefully and ask yourself that question. What is the Holy Spirit's filling going to look like in my life? You're going to see six or seven things in there that are evidences of God's filling ways that His Spirit makes a difference in our lives. But I want to kind of focus on just one for a few moments this morning, kind of whet your appetite. Timothy Keller says it this way, that what the Spirit of God essentially does is makes God real. He takes God away from being a distant entity or concept and makes God real to us. When Jesus was with his disciples, trying to encourage them about the fact that he was leaving, do you remember what's accounted for us of that in John chapter 16? When Jesus says to them, but I tell you the truth, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. He will guide you into all truth. The Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Jesus, in effect, is saying, it's going to be better when I leave. Now, can I ask you, how in the world could it be better than having Jesus with us? Well, Jesus simply says, because when I leave, you're going to have God in you, not just with you. That God's presence is not going to be alongside you, it's going to be in you. And in the same way I led you alongside you, He is going to lead you from within you.
Do, do you realize how amazing that can be? If, if it's really true that we can live our lives, whether it be do our ministries or conduct ourselves at work or in our homes in such a way that we could count on God's Spirit to, to lead us, that we could listen and that we could move forward with the kind of guidance that would come from His Spirit. I have just begun to learn this, just begun to understand this. But I want to share with you just an incident where I sense that that's what God's Spirit has been doing in my life. Uh, One of the things that I get to experience frequently, the great pleasure, is having someone share their story with me, talk about what God's doing in their life or what's happening in their life anyway. These are really sacred kind of moments and, and tender times, and I'm particularly concerned that when I have those conversations that what I say to a person in that vulnerable moment is, is, is critical and is, is, is thoughtful and is led by God's Spirit to say. I saw an appointment on my calendar a few months ago uh, with a woman that I had not met before, and she came in and said she had just started to occasionally attend the church, and she told me her story. Her story was one of tragedy. As a young girl, she had grown up wanting to get married and was excited about meeting the guy and got married, and they had three kids, and life was moving just as you would draw it up. Until one day, they had gone to the river as a family like they typically did, and they had put the raft in the water, uh, three kids on their life jackets and, and dad, and they had shoved off with laughter and, and smiles as they paddled down this river. She got in the car and drove up to the place where she was going to take the raft uh, out and and meet them. And as she pulled into the parking lot, she noticed that people were standing, facing the river, gathered together, uh, pointing and watching. She got out of her vehicle and started to walk. She noticed on the far bank a raft, her family's raft, was beat up and deflated just there on the, the bank. She began to run towards the river, and someone grabbed her and said to her, your, your children are okay. They're all right. And then the words she said that would haunt her and ring in her ears for, for, for years to come was the sentence, you're, you're, they're still looking for your husband. It took them three days to find his body, and over the next number of days, the story started to roll out of what had happened to Pam, Pam's husband. The river was at a low flow. It had carved out an unusual flow underneath this big boulder, and it had sucked the family raft underneath there. And and then they had gotten caught in in that wash of water. And if it had not been for the life jackets for the kids and the fact that their dad took each one of them and shoved them to the surface, um, none of them would have survived. As she told this story, the pain was very evident. She talked about how she had walked away from God or anybody who claimed to be a follower of God. But she realized that she had searched about for other answers to her questions, that there was, there was none, and she came wanting to give her life to Jesus. And so we prayed together, we hugged, we cried together. And then I had this very strange sense that I was supposed to ask her something. Ask her if you can tell her story. Now, if you know much about preachers, you know that we're always looking for good stories, right? So I just thought maybe that was the vulture in me, right, that just was looking to 
tell a good story. So I resisted this until it was so clear I was supposed to ask her that. I asked her, and she was actually uh, pleased that I would consider doing that. So this last Easter, I told Pam's story in our Easter services, and it was a, a moving time. And after the final service, a young mom came up to me with, I could never count the kids that were running around her legs, and she said, that was my story. I thought she was speaking metaphorically, and so I said, I understand. Tell me, tell me a bit about it. She said, no, no, I was in that boat. I was one of the three kids that was in that boat. I had not met this woman or her mom before, um, and I was at first appalled at how that must have felt to hear her story uh, out of the blue on, on Easter morning. We prayed together, and I thanked her and, uh, for uh, just letting me know that. That afternoon, I got an email from her mom, Pam, saying that she and her daughter, who had been estranged from each other, had not talked for years, were in the same service on Easter morning in the same church, not knowing each other was there. And she said, my daughter heard the story for the first time from my perspective and the pain that it felt to me and this thing that has driven such a wedge in us now she's decided to begin reconciliation. And I thought, God, you are so amazing because I so often think that I'm like dispensing you when the reality is that you're calling me to enter into something that you're doing already to step into it. Ask her if you can tell her story. I thought it would just be to bless a few people. Little did I know it would be to heal a family. You see, it's exhilarating, it's, it's messy, sometimes I don't know if I'm hearing God or, or something else, but once you get a taste of, of God's Spirit leading you, you'll never want to go back, you'll, you'll never want to change. So for a moment, let me just speak to this idea of how are we filled with the Spirit? How do you open yourself up to God's Spirit leading in your life? I want to be very helpful here and also very careful not to do one of those formula kind of things. Do this and that, and alakazam, you're, you're filled. But I think there's a, a word picture that may help you, and then a couple of words that aren't words we use that frequently for you to consider. First, the word, word picture. I first heard this from the late Dr. Bill Bright when he talked about this idea of spiritual breathing. Where, where you begin with uh, before God with an exhale. It happens when we worship, doesn't it? It happens when we pray. It's that sense of confession, of saying what's true about ourselves, of letting God right-size us, downsize us, humble us to the point where we can, we can hear and we can receive. It's putting ourselves in th- the right spot. And then it's to inhale. It's to ask. It's to invite God's Spirit. It's to set our course and to ask God to to allow us to have those movements in our life that bring us into an intersection with what He's doing and what He wants to do in our lives. Remember, this filling is a constant thing. It's not a one-time event. And so this idea of spiritually breathing throughout our day let me give you a couple of words that I found helpful. First came across these from the, from the late um, theologian and pastor John Stott, and the first word is mortification. 
Not a word we use that often, but when you read through Romans 8, you'll see it. It's called out in Romans 8:13, by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body. Now when we read that, we can be tempted to think that that just simply means we try not to sin. We set our will against not doing bad things. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, there's a lot right with doing that. But that just simply gets at the behavior. That comes from the will. It doesn't get to the issue of motivation, why we sin. We could say we're not supposed to sin because of the consequences that might befall us as a result of them. And again, that's a good line of thinking, but that's not this idea of mortification. That's of some value, but until we get to what causes us to sin, what's the fear in us that causes us to grab for some sense of safety in that moment over against the greater sense of how God has created us to be and, and to live? You see, that's the motivational level. Putting to death misdeeds, mortifying them, happens when the Spirit of God floods our life, comes into our life, and shows you there's no need for you to be afraid, that you are a child of the King, that you are a son or a daughter of God Most High, and the freedom that that can bring to say, I don't need to perform so people think I'm good. I don't need to be held sway by the opinions of others. And what follows is that sin loses its promise just a little bit. It loses its power over us. It'll happen maybe to you sometimes in worship. It does to me. I'll be worshiping. I'll be listening to the music and hearing the words, and something happens in my spirit, and I, I, I take a look at God's grace again in a fresh way, and I get overwhelmed with, with the goodness towards me, and all the heat goes out of that grudge that I've been harboring, that, that wound that I've been nursing. Suddenly, it seems so small and so petty. What's happening is my sin is being mortified. The motivation is being removed. The other is aspiration, the other word, again, an old Puritan word. We don't use that much, but again, from Romans 8 and verse 5, having your mind set on what the Spirit desires, fixing your eyes on Jesus, desiring to live a new life, wanting more for your walk with God, wanting God to be made real to you in such a way that it affects how you engage your life. I think I saw this in an interaction between a a dad and his little boy the other day. They were walking together hand in hand, and the little guy, four or five years old, was misbehaving. He was trying to kick everything he could reach and still be held onto by his dad, and he was squirming, and and the dad was getting uh, growingly frustrated, and I was watching because that's what we do as parents. We love the joy of watching somebody else struggle with their children, right? So that schadenfreude moment was wonderful for me, and I could see that it was building up in this dad, and finally it got to a crescendo, and he turned and he reached down, he picked up this little guy, and when he got him eyeball to eyeball, I thought, all right, here we go, this is going to be good. <laughs> he broke into a big smile, and he, and he kissed his son, and he gave him a hug, and then he put him back down. I was so disappointed in that moment. <laughs> not what I wanted to see. 
But I was amazed at what I saw next because suddenly what happened, I don't know how long it lasted, but this little guy's behavior changed for just a moment. It got better. What had happened was a a mortification and then an aspiration in a four- or five-year-old way. This little guy was no more positionally a son of his father when he was held in his arms than he was on the ground, but something had changed in his heart. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, God's Spirit is placed within you. It's either true or it's not. And if it's true, God's Spirit is given to make God real, to be what you can learn to follow more in your life. You are a child of the King. Don't you know a compliment when you hear it? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us, each of us, to set our sights to walk more and more in your Spirit, with your Spirit, to enjoy more and more the reality of being sons and daughters of the King. Christ Church, I want to ask you this morning, don't you want to just take a minute right now and let God's Spirit visit you? right alongside this truth. I find it's even good when my posture reflects the desire of my soul. Maybe unfold your arms. Perhaps lay your hands open in your lap. You begin by letting go of those condemning thoughts that do not serve God's purpose in your life. Become ready to receive. Say, Spirit of God, come fill this imperfect vessel. Drive out the darkness and the doubt in me. Best I know, Lord, I'm yielding myself to you. Father, through your Holy Spirit, fill each of your followers in this room with the knowledge of your will. Through all spiritual wisdom and understanding that they would walk in a manner worthy of you, to please you in every respect. And Father, as we are led by your Spirit, may it lead us into those kinds of seasons of endurance and patience, joyously giving thanks to you, our God, who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For you, O Lord, delivered us from the domain of darkness. You transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. We rest in that, Lord. We live out of that, and we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.